the Making Sense of Life podcast, episode five. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja. Uh, we've got a very special guest today, uh, Rana Das Gupta, who is uh, an author, uh, written a number of different books. He was previously um, got the, the Commonwealth Prize for Best Novel in 2010 for his book Solo. Uh, he's, we're going to talk to him in a little while about the book uh, Capital that he's written. Um, but let's say hi. Hello there to you, Rana. Hi there. Hi there. It's great to have you on on the podcast. Um, a lot of our listeners won't know much about you. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I know that you're you're born in Canterbury, England, with an Indian Bengali father and a British mother, educated at Oxford. You lived in New York and then in Delhi for, I think, about the last 14 years. Is that right? Yeah, it's 15 now. The time's rolling on. I, um, I moved to Delhi... Um, in the year 2000 um, to be with my girlfriend Um, and I'd I'd never lived in India before that and um, so I spent a certain amount of time after I arrived um, getting used to this place and reflecting a lot on my background, on my my European upbringing and of course my own Indian roots and um, it was a very exciting arrival for me and to some extent, this book Capital comes out of the 15 years that I spent there, and that that reflection on 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 my own background and the city I came to. Right, and that this book has certainly made quite an impact. It's called Capital, um, fairly hefty tome. My version's got 455 pages here. Uh, my version says Capital, a portrait of 21st century Delhi. Although there is another version that says uh, De- uh, the eruption of Delhi, isn't it? Yeah, the U.S. Uh, subtitle is slightly different. They wanted something more volcanic. Okay, just right. To grab their readers. Right, but the book has certainly made an impact. Just some quotes. Uh, Salman Rushdie, Rana Dasgupta is the most unexpected and original Indian writer of his generation. Uh, William uh, uh, Darimpal, an astonishing tour de force by a major writer at the peak of his powers. Uh, New York Times, lyrical and haunting. Um, so, and I, I, I read the book last year, and I must say, I, I read it on two, two flights, actually, on a flight, I think, out to India on, on the way back, and I was totally gripped um, by, by it, really. I mean, I think what's so unique about it is that it sort of, um, it gives you a very thorough history of, of Delhi, and then the conversations that you have with people really, as it were, bring that even more to life. Uh, and show how the how 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 
how the city has changed and why it's changed the way it has, which I think is a really unique perspective. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I, I had written two books before I wrote this one, both of them in Delhi and neither of them set in Delhi. Uh, one was set in Bulgaria and the other one was set in an airport, uh, an unnamed airport. And it took me the better part of a decade to write those two books. And when I finished the second of them, I looked around me and thought it's really time that I registered some of the remarkable things that I've lived through in this decade in this city because it was going through extraordinary changes. A lot of money was being made. The city was being ripped down and rebuilt. The Commonwealth Games had just happened at the time that I started thinking about this book uh, in 2010. Yes. Um, and that, in the name of the Commonwealth Games, a lot of there was there was enormous uh, slum demolition and re reimagining and rebuilding of the city. So I felt that it was time for me to really think about writing about Delhi and what it meant. Um, and I thought that the only way to do that was to go and talk to people because. Um, I thought that probably what was going on in people's lives in the city was more extraordinary than anything I could dream up. Um, just from the experiences of many of my friends and acquaintances, I could see that there were crazy things going on in families, for instance. I mean, it, uh, I mean you think truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, I think in this case, yeah, I think so. I think sometimes, you know, when you live through very remarkable moments. You find human beings responding to them in ways that really are very impossible to dream up. Um, and I thought that the truth was important. And I also wanted people who were reading about it in other places to not to have the alibi of thinking that this was just a novel. I wanted them to come, come to terms with the fact that in emerging Asia, life really was this strange. Yes, and I think that gives, gives that very unique perspective. You say, uh, you say elsewhere that um, the past in, in, in India is not something to be nostalgic about like it is in Europe and, and America. And I think there's that, that really, I think, captures it really well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, um, this is one of the things that's difficult, for, difficult to express about a place like this, which is that it's, everything has changed since the liberalization of the economy in 1991, which ended some 45 years of um, a command economy, a controlled economy. Um, it's changed the, the, the wealth, the, the outlook and, and, and horizons of the society, the mobility of people, all these kinds of things have changed very drastically. Um, but, um, and, it, and it can look very chaotic to outsiders, but I think one of the things that's, that gives this place an immense sense of magnetism and energy is that, just as you say, there is no moment in the 20th century that people are dwelling on and wishing they could return to, which is very much the case in Europe and to some extent in America. Uh, here, everyone is betting on the future, which has to be better for most people than the past. And so there's this enormous kind of drive and verve about it all. Um, which makes it all very, very exciting. It does, and yet at the same time, I must say, the book is, in many places, quite bleak. I mean, it is, yeah. it has, it's an account that has to be told. We, we really need to hear this. Um, you, you did an incredible amount of research, I mean, and persevering to make those contacts as well. It, it would be very easy to give up. And, you know, I think, it, from, I think, yeah, I think anything, you know, let's, let's talk about it in this way. Let, let's talk a little bit about 
the background of the book, and then we'll get into the book itself. So, did you find it hard being an outsider? You said you moved in there 2000 with your girlfriend at the time, um, and then you had this idea that you really wanted to write it. I mean, what kept you going? Well, I, I think that, um, I think for me, the, the sense that, the, I, I felt that the things that were going on in Delhi were not very well accounted for in sort of conventional um, Western sort of developmental theory. You know, the idea that, that all societies, when they become modern, will become Western, and when they become wealthy, will, will become liberal and, and, and look something like Sweden or whatever it is. Um, it was clear to me that um, India was, and Indian cities were, were thoroughly modern. They were in some ways dictating the terms of modernity to the rest of the world. But the modernity that was unfolding in these places looked nothing like what we were expecting we were expecting it to look like. Yeah. And that we had to sort of throw all those theories out and all those, those assumptions out and look at this modernity on its own terms and see what it looks like. And, um, and it, it's, um, and when we look at it, it's, uh, it's a strange, strange assemblage of things. I mean, in some, in some senses, um, religion and very, very, conservative ideas of family and gender um, are even reinforced by this capitalism, which, which destabilizes lots of other things. Um, and at the same time, because, because India doesn't have the same histories of things like of what the state is or what, what um, governments are supposed to do, um, and it has a lot of traumas in its history, um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's you go a lot all the way back to the Moguls. Yeah. All back. To, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a lot more communities and individuals are a lot more self-reliant than it, than in the West. So, so the idea, for instance, that someone else would pay for your healthcare is yes. is anathema to lots of people. So, people are. Uh, it's a very different kind of society that is emerging, and I think it needs to be described on its own terms. Yes, and as you say, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the healthcare uh, part later on, but as you say, I think I'm just coming to that page, page uh, four, uh, towards the end of the book, page 443. The story we have told in this book, in which a place of dazzling, uh, well, yeah, so I'm just going to, yeah. The story we're told in this book, which is a place of dazzling wealth and cultural sophistication, was taken over by a colonial power, and then you go into that history, but you say, is with some very with some variations the re the recent history of very much of the world, and that's what again very fascinating. This is not just the story of Delhi, but if you like, this is our future as 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 a planet. Well, this is the thing that I, I think that uh, for me one of the reasons to write this book is also that you know we're coming to the end of two hundred years or so when the fate of the West was considered to be everybody's fate. Yes. That's what everyone was interested in. And everyone else had a kind of regional story that would eventually merge with this global universal story. Mm. Um, and now um, I think we're at this point in time when we realize that we, we've sort of been told a lie in this respect, that 
it, it's implausible, this story, that the fate of a very few former imperial powers could ever be the story of the whole world. Yeah. Um, those are exceptional, rich countries. Um, and that um, the, the average story of the world, the normal story of the world, is very different. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's, that very definitely characterizes the normal story of the world is something that places like Britain and America have no knowledge of, and that is conquest. Yeah. Uh, and the story of conquest and the long-term psychological and social consequences of conquest is something that um, I think only now we're beginning to understand because um, for a long time the formation of new states, independence and, and, and nationalism of the new states sort of, in a way, um, was a very triumphalist kind of language and it suppressed a lot of these consequences. And now, 60, 70 years after those events, when a lot of that initial burst of nationalism has completely unraveled and we're seeing those societies in their raw form, we realize what those consequences are and what they, what they mean. And so we're, we're, we're beginning to embark on a new phase, I think, of, in, of grappling with what the kind of global story is all about. I think technology has played a huge part of that now because of globalization. I mean, one of the things I reflect on is uh, I've got you know children, who, who, some of whom are young adults now, and the whole point that because of globalization and technology, children growing up in Delhi, Mumbai, London, New York, watch the same TV programs, listen to the same music. There, there is this sort of almost global culture that's developing as well across the world, which it was, would have been unimaginable even 20 years ago. Yes, I, I think, I mean, technology is, of course, one of the big things that, that has transformed these societies. And, and one of the things that happens here is, of course, that um, societies like this have leapfrogged. That means that they've, they've adopted the latest forms of technology um, very quickly at the very beginning of their yeah. faces of globalization. So um, you, you have these very amazing societies where, um, where on the one hand, illiteracy and, and ill health is, is still extremely rampant, but where everyone has a mobile phone and where, yeah. in fact, the access to information and the certain kind of global savvy is very, very widespread. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so just going to the I mean, we've got a number of different characters. Who... who and there's just so many different directions we could go. Who, which particularly is your most favourite or mo most moving character in the book? Well, I think um, the the women that I met, um, I, I spent some. A lot of the characters in the book are very wealthy. Yes. Um, and in in many ways, I think the book is devoted to a consideration of what Indian elites are all about what kind of world do they want to live in what kind of world are they trying to build and what are the, what is their cultural background and and all that sort of thing but i think the most striking interviews i did was were interviews i did in a slum community in the north of uh, of delhi uh, where i met um, a group of women who i found truly extraordinary um, i think because women in that community, women especially in that community, um, and this goes for many of the poor of the world, 
um, don't really have any way of outsourcing their functions, which means that they do all their own thinking. They are their own politicians, their own philosophers, their own builders. Um, they have to earn their money but also build their houses. They have to lobby with politicians to get electrical connections and water connections. Um, so um, they are very... They were very amazing and impressive people yeah, who managed to and, and be serene. Can, yeah, and to deal with, with all, the all, all the obstacles and the frustrations. I mean, that's all, one of the big things about Delhi. Whenever, I mean, I go there quite regularly as well, and I always come back thinking, my goodness, life is so easy <laughs> compared to living in Delhi. Um, all the things we take for granted, and then you're talking about slum dwellers as well, and that takes that to another level, completely different level. Yeah. Great. Um, Let's talk. Let's let's move on and and talk particularly about what you talked about the health system there. That's in chapter five. Um, and the th I mean, it comes out through, throughout the book. The whole issue of, of the fragility of life. I'm just going to quote um, something that, that you had a conversation with a with with a with a leading surgeon there, and got the quote. that's on page one hundred and twelve. I'm just coming to it now. Yeah. Um, so this is a surgeon you're talking to, and just talking about the healthcare system. And, and um, my um, my listeners will know that uh, 2014 was was a particularly hard year for me in terms of losing a, a very good friend at the age of 32 in Delhi. Um, and uh, this is just this is, the, this is the quote from 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 this surgeon who who wanted to remain anonymous. He says, a leading surgeon left, let me give you, this is the, the surgeon quoting, speaking here. Let me give you an example. A leading surgeon left his job at the government hospital where I work to join one of the big corporate hospitals. He was offered a salary of 2.4 crores a year, which was 10 times his previous salary. But it was dependent on him delivering 12 crores of revenue to the hospital. Now, if he did the maximum number of operations in a year, he would still, he would still not have, have not delivered 50% of that figure. So the rest had to be delivered by diagnostic tests, which is why there has been such a huge escalation in tests. Patients are sent to do repeated MRI scans so that the doctor can meet targets. Some patients have very high radiation exposure as a result of all this. And then he then goes on to say about how the pharmaceutical and medical equipment industries have a huge role in deciding treatment options, which the patient doesn't know about, and just how everybody's in everybody's pockets and how these hospitals are very dark institutions because, you know, land is acquired for them by the government at a subsidized level, but they're supposed to give, you know, beds to the poor. But then later on, you know, the hospitals don't, they, they don't do that. And it's all about profit. And then they make hundreds and, you know, huge staggering amounts of wealth, which again feeds into this whole issue of, of, of just that influx of incredible wealth into the country. Yes, and I think these are, these are the things, you know, that this sort of, where every, when everything becomes a market, um, and to some extent, um, I think a lot of the, a lot of the formerly socialist countries, um, and I include much of the Eastern Bloc, as well as China and India, yeah. uh, this, when they become, when they become capitalist, they often do so in a, in a way that's more fundamentalist than, yeah. than Europe and America, which is to say that, any resource is a resource that can be uh, exploited for financial gain, including, of course, bureaucratic positions and all these yeah. kinds of things. Um, and so you have. Yeah. I'm, I'm really sorry, my phone is ringing. Just one minute. Sure. Um, uh, can we come back to that? Yeah. yeah. Just, uh, just one minute. 
Yeah, sure, sure. We'll, 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 we'll edit that out. Hello. Hello. Hey, I'm in the middle of a radio interview. I'll call you back. Okay. We can edit that now. That's fine. Where should I go back to? So um, we were just talking um, in terms of in terms of the whole healthcare system and yeah and, um, and the whole total the total embrace in a sense. That's of, right. So of, of what's there. So in, th this includes um, very, very sensitive systems like healthcare systems where um, patients should have some kind of reassurance that when they go into a hospital and are given a diagnosis by a doctor, the only thing that's, that's important to the doctor is their well-being. Mm. Patients in systems where, where there's a lot of financial incentives uh, become very paranoid that that's not really what the doctor is thinking about. And in, in systems like this in India where the kind of sudden influx of market processes into hospitals where doctors are offered very large amounts of money to promote drugs and all these kinds of things, um, patients have very legitimate fears yeah. in this regard. So hospitals become very paranoid places yeah. and patients end up feeling that their relatives have died or, or things have gone wrong for reasons that had nothing to do with um, healthcare, but with 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 markets. Yes, and and in in the book, the stories of Shibani and Amit and and Arti really bring that bring that to life. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, very sort of yeah, very very sort of sad to hear to hear their stories. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yes, I mean they, these are characters who who have um, there's a a young man and his fiance and uh, an older woman. And both these these two parties have have seen people die in the uh, in the new corporate hospitals uh, for reasons that uh, that that felt very very un unjust and, and and badly managed to them. And indeed, their stories seem to imply that there was really a lot of, a lot of other stuff going on. Yes. Um, people being asked to um, spend immense amounts of money, and really they are immense amounts of money. Yeah. The kind of money that that uh, that middle class people don't have just sitting around. So um, I think that the statistic that one of the doctors gave was that forty percent of people who are hospitalised for more than a week end up taking loans or liquidating assets. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, healthcare insurance is is health insurance is limited and not very and the coverage is not very good. Um, yeah. Corporate hospitals um, ask for a lot of money up front. They like to prescribe very expensive treatments. And so people enter into these strange kind of whirlpools of health care, of, of health terrors, but also financial terrors. Yes. Um, they're very, very strange places to be in. So these characters talk about um, you know yes. those 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 strange psychological states. Yes, and and also on top of that, sort of going into hospitals and seeing that you know the person gets sicker when they go into hospital rather than better, and yes. how often that's the case. Yeah. Um, moving on from there, I mean, for, for for Delhi, India, the world to grow, there's going to have to be a, a sense of commonality and compassion for one another, and yet this 
rampant materialism. I, I'm thinking in, uh, particularly at the beginning of chapter 14, you've got that story about the shopping in, 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 in the shopping mall and the lady shouting out, Gandhis, how many Gandhis have you got? And so, right. I mean, that, that, that just, just, just blew my mind, you know. I mean, first of all, in terms, and, you know, people saying I've got 30 Gandhis and more and more Gandhis and then somebody's got so many Gandhis. And then you, what you realise is it's, it, it's, for, it's for some kind of Reebok watch and it's actually 1,000 rupee notes that they're talking. So who's carrying the most 1,000 rupee notes? Which have pictures of Gandhi on Which them, yes. Of Gandhi. And you think, <laughs> what would Mahatma Gandhi make of, of what has gone happened to the India that he helped, you know, found in 1947? I mean, right. it's just completely mind-blowing, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think what um, one can... In the book that I, I, I sort of veer between um, a kind of defiant optimism yes, and, and great pessimism in this book. Um, I, think, um, I think on the one hand, um, I think on the one hand things, are, things have become quite bleak mm. um, in, in many respects. That there is, um, I, I liken the situation to that of Moscow and I don't think it's quite as advanced as, or, or, or kind of profound as the Moscow situation, but definitely Delhi is a capital city that has seen a, a kind of former socialist style monop a state monopoly system, private monopolies of various sorts, um, and the sense that um, that, that capitalism is a system with, in which only the very warlike get ahead. Uh, the, only the people with the best connections, the, the, the people who are, are willing to hustle harder than everyone else and, and stoop to the lowest kinds of, of strategies. That is something that really dominates very much in Delhi. There's a sense that all idealism and all talk of values and all that kind of stuff is simply naivety and is not, is not really suited yeah. for this kind of world. At the same time, I think that things move on quite fast and in a way that worldview can exhaust itself more quickly than one thinks. When one's in the middle of it, it feels like it dominates everything. But yes. um, things have changed even during the time I wrote this book and since it. I mean, I think there's there's been a lot of um, disillusion with various things that have happened, of large-scale government corruption, yeah. of violence against women, um, even increasing the ecological issues and pollution and things like this. And I think that um, despite all the things that we've spoken about, this is a place which has a, a very thriving civil society, a, an open press. Uh, there is open discussion about these issues. There's there's protest. There's uh, a lot of people who are devoting a lot of thought to how society and law and everything can 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 deal with some of these challenges. So I don't I don't think that the game is over or the answers are already set. In fact, this is a society that's innovating very fast and how 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 it yeah. deals with these kind of things. And you can see the changes year on year. Yes. And what's and what sort of comes through in your book is is your love for the country and for the city and for the people as well. I mean, just just to, just to add, I mean, I, I've been going to Delhi since I was eight years old, and I'm almost fifty now. Uh, and in the last sort of ten years, been going almost twice a year, sometimes more than that. 
And I always remember as, as a kid going there, my, 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 I remember a particular aunt would say to me, um, we have all these problems in India, you know, the poverty and the corruption, because, um, because, because of the poverty, well, what we need is education. If we get educated, then everything will be all right. And we had this sort of disagreement, really. I said, you know, we have all the education here in the UK, but it's not going to, it's not going to change things. It's, and uh, in many ways, that that seems to have come to light. You know, the, the saying is, if you educate a crook, what do you get? You get an educated crook, and uh, <laughs> to, to do more. But, but 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 the people, you know, and I, I sense that from your book, you know, a real love for the people and and a, and a real hope that somehow or other we we can work work through this. Yes, I mean, I think that the, uh, in a way, a, a lot of the early gains that could be made in the economy, especially in a place like Delhi, and Delhi is, Delhi's got a different history from, say, Bangalore or Bombay. Um, it's a city where the big commercial operations are involved in, in in industries that are high that are, that are highly regulated by government and for for which close contacts in the government are very important. Yeah. So Delhi is where, where you have a lot of real estate, a lot of mining, a lot of telecommunications, all these industries where you have to be close to government. By contrast, the south of India is where a lot of the IT industries were set up precisely because they wanted to be as far from government as possible. Yes, that makes sense. And those industries are kind of legendarily, um, you know, clean in in Mostly, I mean, there have been big scandals in that industry too. But, but um, relatively speaking, that's that's, yeah. that's where the that's where the sort of clean business is. So, so in Delhi, I think you know there is a lot of the early gains in 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 business were available to to people you could describe as oligarchs, people who had uh, close connections with with politics, who owned big businesses. And could quickly snap up a lot of um, a lot of the new, as they say, low low hanging fruit. Yes. Um, I think 10, 15, 20 years on, um, there's there is now um, there is now a much stronger middle class um, who's also innovating in very different kinds of ways, and has very simple kinds of. Um, demands on the society that they can breathe clean air send their kids to good mm. schools go out and be safe yes um, mm. and these are the sorts of things that are actually rallying a lot of people in delhi yes to some extent um, that small class of the super rich no longer can control um, the various reforms that a much larger group of people wants to um, in introduce into the society yes. or, 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 the, or even the debates that the society wishes to Discuss. Yeah, and we've seen that obviously with, with with the fall of the Congress Party, the rise of the Armadmi Party, you know, the way that in the recent elections in Delhi, just Congress was completely wiped out. I mean, there is a sense that we need to do something, as it were. Let's let's move on, Rana. Though, Let, let's talk about um, another theme that comes through the book is the rise of decadence, drug abuse, sexual licentiousness, if you like, marital breakdown, um, all those traditional. Uh, culture and then, you know, 
the change of, of, of mores and values. Uh, I, just a, a quote you've got at the beginning of chapter 16 um, on page 375. He said, You like this table? I designed it myself. Brilliant white. If anyone comes into the room unexpectedly, they'll never be able to spot the cocaine on it. Right. Uh, you know, a Delhi millionaire. <laughs> quote. Was, that, was, that, that was a conversation you had when, when you interviewed somebody? Or, or what was that? Uh, yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, and then the whole issue. I, I think of in chapter six the story of Sukhvinder and Dhruv as well. I mean, the whole, yeah. The, the whole well, I think I, I think you know one of the things is. I mean, to some extent, this this book is written against um, what you could call the Time Magazine account of capitalism, which basically says that. You know, this idea, especially an American idea, that um, capitalism is a very serene thing. Um, and, it's, it's, and it makes very tranquil people who, who don't want to think about violent things or whatever. They just want to sort of enjoy their cappuccinos and their, their sort of leisurely walks with their families and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, what this book says, really, is that this is not at all the case, that capitalism arrives... A, a, amid enormous turbulence, it rips everything apart. I mean, this is this is what Marx always says it did. Yes. It rips apart social relations and reforms them in new ways. And so, there is this there is this period of of, of trauma, and we're still in it when when um, fundamental things like the relationships between parents and their children, or between uh, uh, spouses, or whatever. Um, are, are pulled apart and, and where people have to kind of find their way back to some sort yeah. of decent equilibrium. Um, so, for instance, the, the fact of middle-class women work very large numbers, which they, which they do, um, and this happened very fast. Um, yes, yeah. Women, say, middle-class women above the age of about 50 uh, worked much less than those who were below that age. Yes. Um, and many of those middle-class women had become very successful, many, in many cases more successful than their male counterparts because um, they're often better at some of the kinds of team um, yes, really playing that, that, that modern corporate life requires. Mm. Um, they have, um, of course completely changed what traditional expectations of middle-class women in the home were, supposed, were all about, which had to do with, with, well, with not working, with being in the house, with looking after kids, with looking after cuisine and all those kinds of things. Um, and both men and, and parents have become very troubled by this. And there has been a backlash sometimes a very violent backlash yes. against um, the new roles that women are choosing to play in the society. So these are just the, the kind of the, some of the basic ways in which you see um, that capitalism arrives and produces all kinds of new traumas and violence which, which no one really expected and, um, yes. and have to be dealt with in their own way. Yes, okay, yes. yes. Let, let, let me, I'm going to quote, quote to you from your book in terms of the question is how do we move on from here? How do we, as it were, how do we build a better future? And on page 439 you write, 
We are, we are better able to use what our predecessors built, far better than we are able to build for those who are to come. In this sense, the short-termism of Delhi, the hyper-accelerated existence where everyone is trying to draw out whatever they can before the whole resource is exhausted, is not just Delhi's problem. And then, so I'll just carry on, but, but it is a problem of the global system and one that may only be avoided, and this is the key point, if we can recover our sense of eternity in, dis in disobedience to all accepted processes of contemporary thought and feeling. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about this, particularly that line, if we can recover our sense of eternity. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that um, there is a very kind of terrifying short-termism mm. about a lot of the things that are happening today in the world. I think if you look only at Hollywood, uh, the extent to which Hollywood has sort of decided for us that the end of the world is around the corner yes. um, and that moving to other planets is now our own. Uh, th this, is, uh, this has become a kind of orthodoxy which um, I think essentially essentially says there is no point anymore thinking about political solutions. There's no point anymore thinking about the good of the species or the planet. Basically, that game is over, and you might as well just ransack it and take what you can while um, things are still around, because the end of the world is nigh. So there's this kind of end-of-times end decadence. Yes. Um, and I think that you know, that has a very particular form in a place like this, that um, you have a, a socialist system for a long time where you're told to, to, you have to be frugal and the public service is very important and all that kind of stuff. And you're told that capitalism is a terrible thing where, mm. where the few oppress the many and everyone becomes ugly and materialistic and loses their, their spiritual grounding and everything. And then capitalism comes in and that's exactly what people do. That's exactly how they they treat it because that's yeah. what they always told it was yeah. that it's basically a kind of race to to just pillage yeah and, um, and and delhi has taken that full on i mean it's taken that lock stock and barrel everything let's just go for it which you know w without the sort of restraint maybe that we've had had in the west mm. yeah i mean in for instance in the water system we are mm. we have we don't most middle class well, most houses, most people who have official houses, which is admittedly not the majority of the people in the city, um, have their own wells and just simply take water out of the ground for their own use, uh, which means that the public water system is bypassed and no one who's operating that public system has any idea how much sewage is being produced yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and again, when you have a system like that, then the only incentive you have is just to take it quicker than your neighbor does because the water table is going down. Um, so I think this sense of eternity, um, I think it's, it's something that is particularly acute in, in places like this, which have this very accelerated sense of time and, the, yes. and change and all these kinds of things. But I think it's a global problem. Yes. And I just wonder, because if we think about, you know, the West as well, the West is based on sort of Judeo-Christian values and how that molded um, America and Europe in, in, you know, in, in, in the 18th and 19th century. And I, my sense of that is that there, there's been a growing refusal to sort of really explain that these were such important factors. If you think about 
people like William Wilberforce in, in, in Britain, um, Lord Shaftesbury, who, who, who saw huge societal problems in England and, and because of their Christian faith did a lot to try to bring about a change in society and in many ways largely succeeded. Um, this whole issue about an Englishman's word is, is, is his bond, you know, and even I think Wilberforce as well trying to work against the colonialism of, of India as well. These things, that, those things I don't think are widely recognised enough in the West. There's almost a, a refusal to, to, to go down that road. That, that road. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I can't. I can't follow you to the ends of your your optimism about the effects of Christianity on on Western societies. But but I, I agree that um, at this moment of where emer where we for the first time in in the last two hundred years have major capitalist powers emerging that have little or no Judeo Christian basis. Yeah. We are forced to look at. Um, the philosophical and religious underpinnings of society. And we do have to realize that, yes, um, capitalism and the way that it's managed um, is a highly cultural thing. Yeah. It, it's spoken about as if it's just a kind of abstract scientific system that, that will expand anywhere that we let it and, and it will do the same things wherever it expands because it's basically uh, a kind of it's a culture-less system, but that's not the case at all. And in a way, a lot of my book is, is talking about how um, very profound cultural and historical assumptions are brought to bear on such simple things as what does it mean to work? What does it mean to buy something? What is money? Yes. Uh, why do we want money? And what is it, what is it supposed to be all about? Is a businessman, a civilian, or a warrior. Um, these are all kind of th questions that uh, I think until now the West has been relatively settled and, and complacent about because they, they've looked out across the capitalist world and seen other people with the same assumptions as them yeah. drawing the same conclusions. Now we have to revisit those kinds of questions. Yes, and I think that's what your book does so wonderfully, really. It really forces and challenges those assumptions um, in a, you know, with, with a complete, with a, with, from a different angle. As, as you said, I think within the West, the, the assumption has been that everyone thinks like us, and, and if they reach our level of progress, material progress, then they will think the same way. And I think mm. you, you only have to look at the Middle East to see what's happening over there as well. To right. see that, 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 that those kind of ideas are, um, are, not, are not going to stand water at all. Um, any, any, anything, anything further you, you, you want to say about the book um, in terms of the message? I mean, we, we've obviously covered that a, a lot, that this is a book not just about Delhi, but it's about really our global future, really. Um, anything else you... you I'm, trying, I'm trying to think. Um... You had a lot more questions. Was there any? Was there any yeah. one that well, you were burning to ask? Yeah. Well, actually, what I wanted to do, actually, uh, Rana, was just to, to get a little bit more behind the man, uh, to, to get to, to know the man behind the book a little bit more as well. Right. And and right. by getting the book, you, which I thought was fascinating, you obviously talked about how your grandfather left Lahore, and then how your you know and came to uh, came to India, came to Calcutta, and then how your father left left. 
left, left Calcutta, came to India, and in many ways lost that connection with India. Uh, and there, there's there's the lovely way that he he met your mother in in a restaurant. They both in I think it's 1965, and. Um, he that uh, they he, he, your mother ordered a meal, he'd ordered a meal, and they ended up getting the wrong the, each other's dishes, and then struck right. up a conversation. <laughs> you know that. that um, but what, what what I was sort of going to get at was that, in a sense, you've come full circle, as it were. Your father lost a connection with India, and, and he would go back, and he he didn't really fit in. Like that. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yes, I mean, there's a there's a the. the the three generations of my family that are discussed in, in this book, each one has involved a, a major um, kind of exodus in a way or, or journey. Um, my, my grandfather, though he was a Bengali Hindu, was very happily settled in, in Lahore, in, in Punjab, uh, before, before uh, the partition of India. And... Um, uh, when the partition happened, he he fled like so many Hindus. In fact, he was helped out of Lahore by yeah. his friend, his bridge partner, the right. Muslim chief of police who helped him out and lent him his car and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then fell into psychological and financial difficulties, partly as a result of, of partition, which my father responded to by deciding he was going to go to England to study so he could improve the family situation. But he never went back to India. Um, and it was me that did that yeah. uh, a yeah. generation later. Um, it's very difficult to explain these kinds of things. I mean, in my own life, I ended up in India totally accidentally, just because I was in love with someone who lived there and I decided I wanted to be with her. But when you look at these things in a broader kind of historical context, you, do, you are struck by the ways in which each generation is making up for certain kinds of lacks or, or whatever in the previous one. Um, and yes, my father, who's now lived in England for 50 years and is really very English in most of his instincts, um, for him, I am the primary link back to his own country. And he asks me to explain it to him and to yeah. help him understand his own family as well. Wow, that's quite fascinating. So, and, and it's fascinating, obviously, for him to to read the book and the, as well that that you've written there as well. Yes, of course, yeah, like that. Why don't you just tell us a little bit more about you know what what you're currently working on? Um, yeah, what, what are you currently working on? What what, what are your plans currently? You, you've written two. You've written two very you know successful novels, and now you've got this book as well. Um, Yeah, I'm, in a way, I think the Delhi, despite the fact that this last book was the first one that I've written about Delhi, to a great extent, Delhi has been uh, my, major, my major inspiration. It's the thing that has um, given me the most kind of literary impulse. Uh, I started, I had not written anything before I came to Delhi. It was in, only in Delhi that I just started writing novels. Yeah. Um, I, and I think um, my, my relationship to Delhi is very complicated, as this book will, yeah. will show, but it, it continues to be extremely fertile for me in this respect. So my, my coming books also are, are build-off themes of the city, um, 
one is a novel about the kind of a kind of global oligarchy. Yes. Um, which, which in a way uses a lot of the material I acquired during the research for this book, which but I could not write down because it was too private um, yes. and scandalous. Right. Um, and then I'm writing a, a book of non-fiction also about um, some of the broader issues that ar arose from my consideration of Delhi. So I think, like many writers, I mean, the same ideas continue to be worked out over long periods of time in different in different books. And obviously, this is obviously a, a big theme that's that, that's on your heart. This whole issue of of, of globalization and the impact on on people trying to grapple with that. And um... well, yes, because I, I think that um, the the ideas essentially, if I had to sum up this 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 in one phrase, I would say that. You know the ideas that were developed between the 18th century and the 20th century for the for the management of Western societies. These ideas have reached their limit yes. because we realize that Western societies are not the universal story. Yes. Um, most societies will never be as rich as they are or were, mm -hmm. um, and we just have to live with that. Um, and most societies have very different histories and cultures to Western societies. So we have to kind of relativize that Western achievement now and we have to sort of start thinking again um, about how we'll solve lots of the problems we face now, some of which occur at local and national levels and other, others at global levels. But if we, if we to sort of toss out a lot of what we learnt in yeah. two centuries, um, there's a lot of work to do. Yes, and, and that's where I um, I kind of am beginning my next work of nonfiction. Great, how we think about those things. Great. Well, Rana, thank you so much for giving us your time and just thank you to you talking to us. Your book, the book is called Capital: A Portrait of Twenty First Century Delhi by Rana Dasgupta. Um, it's, it's it's on Amazon. It's all all the good stuff. You've got a paperback version coming out, haven't you? Next, next the year. paperback is uh, out around now. Yes. Okay, so it's it's out around March 2015. So from from March 2015, the paperback version is there. Uh, very well worth reading. Very fascinating stories, but in a unique way, bringing history with where Delhi is today. But it's not just about Delhi. It's about our global future and the impact of globalization, the impact of materialism, the impact of changing value systems. Um, thank you so much again, Rana, for, for, for this opportunity to, to talk us through, through, through the book. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.